1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Aaron's show, the podcast for blind persons, where we talk about issues in the blindness community, our friends and society. So today I've been really looking forward to recording today's episode. I've been talking to him for a while. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we want to introduce to you James. Uh, James, I believe, is um, from the UK, from England. And I believe that he has a really interesting story and a lot of interesting perspectives. I've been reading a lot of his posts in our social media groups, and it sounds like he has a lot of interesting things to say. James, welcome to Aaron's show. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well, thank you, Aaron. You you, you flatter me too much. You, you you turn my cheeks red with
1: your flattery. <laughs> well, well, thank well, thank you. Um, I was very impressed with several things that you said in in our group uh, where we met on Facebook. Um, yes. Can you remind us and tell us all about that? Because today you were telling me that you want to talk about situations uh, versus circumstances. I think you left a really good example in the group. The trouble that I have is that I do not remember the situation or circumstance. So, <laughs> I need you to go back and if you can, try to jump off of what I said and if you can try to remember the situation and circumstance that you were talking about. So, take a nice, so take a deep breath and just start from the beginning, introduce yourself, and then slowly but surely walk through it. Okay, give it a try. Go ahead. Yeah, no problem.
2: So, a couple of years ago, I started working in the visual impaired communities and while I was a kid and had a, a various level of eyesight impairment myself, I wasn't really in the, the blind, the, the true visual impairment community until a couple of years ago. So I kind of transitioned over and it was that sort of, as my eyesight is a degenerative condition, I brought in some perspectives and things that other people didn't. And from that, I started writing on a lot of the social media groups, as you've mentioned, and I just kind of like posted my views on things, uh, topics that came up in my day-to-day life, things and, and events that I would go into, you know, circumstances that came up, and someone left a really good comment on one of the posts and was asking, you know, you, you, you kind of always have this differentiation between situation and circumstance, and they actually asked me what I meant, and I think that was the post
1: that, that came up. Um and I think, and I think that's now that you're phrasing it that way, that's what I noticed too. I noticed that someone, and I, I forget if it was me or if it was someone else, but I remember that I noticed it. That someone wanted to talk about the fact that they noticed that you, James, um, made a good, a good, a good point in mentioning that you're differentiating, differentiating, and defining a situation and a circumstance. Now I can tell you right now that I am going to love this. And I'm going to really dig deep with you. I'm really going to – we're really going to help break this down for our listeners. By the way, everybody, um, James, where are you from in England? What what city? Would you like to tell us where you're from?
2: So I was originally born and raised in Scotland, in Glasgow. And uh, through family moving, family trips, family vacations, and family life, I ended up living in England in Manchester. I've been living there for about oh I've been living there for a good eight nine years now so it's it's it's, it's like you say very very much anglicised anglicized, I don't know the, the correct terminology.
1: Well that's that's ver- that's very it's very interesting okay so um and I I really appreciate what you said about how when you were growing up you kind of noticed that w- when you're blind everyone has a different perception of blindness and I call myself blind simply because I am. Um, but it, there's a wide range of of opinions about this. I mean, I've heard everything from visually impaired. I've heard visually yes. challenged, which in my opinion is not appropriate, but I've heard it. Um, I mean, I've heard a lot of different ways of describing the same challenge, which is blindness. So I think if you yes. are someone who has a visual Problem. I, I would more likely consider you to be blind. I would say that person is blind simply because they are, regardless of if they are able to see or not. So that's how, mm-hmm. I, kind of de- that's how I kind of define it. I also really like the way that you put it where you said, you know, everybody has their own perception of blindness, and there's definitely a no man's land where if you kind of, you know, if you're able to see some things, it's hard to explain to people how you're blind. And that can be mm-hmm. uh, very, very, very daunting and very frustrating uh, over a period of time um, in, in your life. And that's just something that I've had to deal with in the States, you know, so that this is something that all blind people have to deal with around the world. So yeah. why don't – so to help us work through a situation or a circumstance, why don't you define those two things, define situation and circumstance and then give us a good situation to think about and a good circumstance to think through. And then I'll certainly give my commentary. Okay, go ahead. So the biggest kind of like
2: terminology difference I've ever really started to coin and started to cultivate with people is to start thinking of situations and circumstances as two separate events. So a situation is the full event. A situation is the, the larger picture, the going and doing something, the big act Such as going to the shops and getting something to eat, going to the cinema, eating out, that sort of thing. So that's, a situation is much more the event. You know, if you look on uh, Oxford English Dictionaries, for example, they're all talks about, you know, about how it's, it's, a situation is created from circumstances, and a situation is created from details, and a situation is a much bigger build up of a much more complicated interlinking system. Whereas circumstances, on the other hand, are much more I suppose chance would be the best way to put it. You don't really have a control over them. They're much more randomised. So they're the things that... Oh! Someone someone yelling out in in the house. Um, No problem. So uh, circumstances, I always kind of say, is kind of the random chance. So you're going down to the shops, that's your situation, but bumping into someone that you didn't see or running into a friend or forgetting something when you were doing shopping that's the circumstance you know it's something that's an an, an actual interaction rather than the bigger event and the post i've actually got it here if you would like me to have a read of it
1: go yes please, please please do that and please also i need you to scooch move your chair closer to your computer and try to put your face a little bit closer to the microphone please and yes go ahead and read the post if you found it there go
2: yeah, that's no problem. So the post that, we, that you and I interlo- uh, interacted over was, um, I, I, I do kind of, much as yourself, you do a, a blog and a, and a podcast. I do these these fields, these little posts that I put up every other day, trying, as I said, kind of keep people interactive and such. And this was all about um, rationalising the situation. And reading from the reading from the screen here. So today I had a thought about thinking. Most of you know I'm an advocate for doing mindfulness, that the mindset that you approach a situation, that you the, the, the approach a the situation with, that you maintain through a difficult situ- circumstance and it develops after the event, the, after the event has ended is incredibly important. And um, that's pretty easy to do, or a lot of people so they think, in a good moment. When we think when we think things are easy, it's not that difficult to look at a situation, look at ourselves and go, well done, old chap, you did that good. Yes, we don't often think eh, sorry, yet that we don't often think things are, you know, when we're doing something difficult or something that's less than stellar. Thus, uh, thus, um, thus, that is where we need to focus our attention. Rationalising a situation, good and bad is as important because it's how we grow and develop actions stem from behavior behavior stems from our from how we feel and how we feel stem from our mindset and that's one of the big things that i always talk about the way that you approach a situation how you think will often guide your overall enjoyment of the situation overall, and then. If you're going to a wedding and you approach it with the same mindset you would approach a funeral, you're not going to enjoy yourself. Whereas, if you approach <laughs> a wedding with the idea that you're going to, you know, enjoy it, you're going to make the most Absolute of it. Absolutely brilliant!
1: Absolutely brilliant! You're you're a hundred percent right. Well, of course, you're 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 a hundred percent right. And just for for the podcast sake, and and to be slight slightly sarcastic, I don't know with. You know, um I don't know. It kind of, with the wedding example, it kind of depends on the couple, and it kind of depends on your opinion oh, of the true. couple. I
2: uh, suppose
1: that's very true. And so you know, what? and some some of these some of these marriages these days in the United States don't last very long. The divorce rates out of control. So sometimes mm. you do go to a wedding thinking, but you're you're absolutely right. Sometimes you can go to a wedding thinking, oh jeez, this isn't gonna work, or oh no. <laughs> 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 It's but a general you're, you're 100%, you're 100% it's a good example. correct, James. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Please, please keep going. Yes. So it's that idea of, like when we
2: feel bad, we tend to wish to forget about it. We want to move on, pretend it never happened. And that's kind of a bad idea. I mean, honestly, it's really bad because we learn from our mistakes and not just from our exercises. That idea of, you know, in a victory you, have, you can learn one thing, but from a defeat you learn a thousand things. It's very true. Because what we learn, what we did wrong and what we can avoid in similarity. Yet, when we refuse to recognize what we did wrong or what was hard, and what was hurt us, then we'll never be able to develop. And That's that whole idea of, you know, my advice, I suppose. My my advice would be that don't force yourself to take on the hardest thoughts and the toughest and the toughest moments and um, for that uh, uh, oops, and the harshest decisions start small build up and you know cultivate the skill I mean I I used my kind of mindfulness training and it's actually something that I've been developing and I'm getting ready to to branch out and hopefully build a business from for a number of years and as hmm. I've traveled the world and as I've lost more of my eyesight I've had to continually adapt my mindset it's one of the greatest examples I ever used when I'm talking about situation versus circumstance is I was uh, going against the the dining out situation. I was dining out at a buffet restaurant and I'd gone up and gotten all my food and I was dining out with friends. So I was very aware that they were more than happy to help me, but I was determined that I'm an independent person. I can do this for myself, even though I knew I find it difficult. So I went up and got the food and uh, as most people will know from a buffet style restaurant, it's Blaring light on the food and then very dim seating. So I'd lost all of my night vision, which I have very little of to begin with, but looking at all these bright lights and this fancy food. I turned around and started bumping into things, eventually actually colliding with a waiter who was coming over to help me because it was just that building anger and frustration in myself. Of, I can't even do this for myself. How, how useless am I in the circumstances of I bumped into a table? Then I shouldn't, I should have been able to see that. I should have been able to go around that and then dropping of my food and going, oh, this is just so difficult for me. And that built up inside myself and that frustration and that kind of level of anger directed at myself more than anything else caused that situation to become so much harder than it really had to be. Whereas if I'd got up, got my food, turned around and bumped into something and rather than kind of trying to rush and, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I just want to get away from this. Why can't I do this properly? If I'd taken control, taken ownership of that moment, of that circumstance, I didn't have... Been, that moment of I collided with something that was out of my control, but what I reacted with, what I thought, and how I felt afterwards was something that I could control. And I let the circumstances overcome me, and I ended up ruining the situation. I ended up returning to my my seat with an empty table by the end of it because I dropped all of it on the way. It was like a something out of a children's nursery rhyme, you know, leaving breadcrumbs back to the way home.
1: <laughs> I do see what you're saying, and that would that would be very very frustrating. The situation was that you were hungry, but the circumstance was that it was difficult for you to get the food without, in your case, spilling or making yeah. making a mess of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: isn't it's like looking back in hindsight on it and kind of doing that reflection on it and, and figuring out, okay, so that's the situation that I was in. I was getting food. I was hungry. I was at a diner. I was dining out with friends. That's all the details that make up the big event. Whereas the circumstances that, you know, the, the chance encounters, the things that were outside of my control, the, the external influences, the going up and not being able to see properly, the dropping food, the colliding with people, the anger that I felt, that frustration, all that sort of stuff. In hindsight, when I look back on it, I felt that you know, why, why was I so determined to prove my own independence? Why was I so dead set on doing this by myself? I was dining out with friends. You know, they're more than happy. They were well aware of my asset limitations. They'd be more than happy to assist me. But because I had that, that mindset that, that I'm, I'm determined to do this and it was a kind of a, in, in as again, in hindsight, it was that way. I, I probably approached the situation with such a poor mindset. It made the, made the whole event much worse.
1: So why do you think, and this is, this is a very, very good question, and this is a really critical point on Aaron's show that, that I want to, I want to learn more about this now that you've brought this up. Why do you think you and, but so many other blind people in our audience and around the world, why do so many of them have such a overwhelming thirst to prove themselves? to prove themselves beyond all reasonable doubt. For, of course, we cannot help that we're blind, and it's it's good to be blind. It's fine to be blind. There's nothing wrong with being blind. So why is there this overwhelming and overarching desire to prove ourselves um, in the face of, you know, the opinions of, of the sighted world? What, what do you think about that?
2: I th- think that the world is so especially western culture i've discovered after my travels of going to china and thailand and philippines and, and places to that extent western world and i don't want to point the finger or blame it anything but i've noticed that there's a much more individualized society it's that way of you stand on your own you grow on your own that idea of a man is an island that sort of thing and all of these even if they're not directly linked this whole aura of independence and personalized independence and building your life around being able to do things for yourself that jumping into a car and driving and going where you want that self-determination that all stems i believe from this idea of personal independence so when someone has a handicap and when someone has an impairment they feel that they still need to strive as much as they can need to find out where that limit is where that where that point of Okay, this is where I, I cannot do it by myself. You still want to find where that is. And honestly, I think that's I think that's actually quite a good thing to have. Which compared to what I've said before, I it sounds like a bit of a juxtaposition, but I think that when people strive for their own independence to keep their comfort zone expanded. And so many of us kind of can get trapped in our own comfort zones, this idea of Okay, I don't want to do anything risky in case something bad might happen. And that whole idea of what might happen, that unknown, this terrible thing of chance and change and random circumstance that could come up, starts pushing people and makes, us, makes their comfort zone shrink. So I actually think it's quite a good thing that we try and stay independent, that we try to be, you know, individualized in that regard. The downside of it, as you pointed out, is that there is this thirst, this overwhelming level of it. And when we don't reach where we feel we should be or where we think we should be, if there's some form of barrier that we have that we come across and we can't overcome, it creates a huge level of frustration because we are so insaturated in this culture of personalized independence. Of, Look, I was able to do this. I took charge of my own destiny sort of, sort of mindsets.
1: Basically, I think I agree with you. The point is that in the Western world, we are so individualistic that individualism basically feeds into the independence issue. Whereas yes. if you take a listen to uh, the podcast that I did a couple weeks ago, about a week ago with Michael Munn from China, he will tell he will back up the point that you made that when you grow up in China or in an eastern country, when you grow up in a collectivist society, one of, one of the consequences of that is that the people who have disabilities there are generally not encouraged to push forward in life. And even though yes. they actually they have the technology and they actually have the tools, the, the stigma in the society does, is not ready to support that. So have you listened, mm-hmm. have you listened to that interview that I did uh, just a week ago?
2: Uh, unfortunately not. I was away in Oregon, uh, do, again, doing my travels. And I'm not sure if it was mentioned yet, but I'm currently sitting in Virginia. Uh, so I'm, despite being from the UK, I've done so much traveling and continue to travel. And again, I try and keep that my own level of independence and individuality sort of thing. Um, so I unfortunately missed it.
1: Oh, no worries. Well, well, of course, you can just go right to our show's page and you can scroll through. Uh, it was the, um, it's right towards the top of the list, one of the episodes, interview with Michael Munn. You'll, you'll, you'll probably really like that because he talked a lot about growing up in China and how that really affects people with disabilities. But yes, yes, you're, you're a hundred, you're a hundred percent right. And my opinion about it is that people who are blind need to find the medium, need to find the, the, the middle point, the origin between the two. Basically, people mm-hmm. who are blind, you need to know when to stand up and you need to know when to ask for help and you need to do them yes. both in a in a strong and a and a kind and a and a productive and successful way.
2: Mhm. It is actually something that I think gives people with visual impairments an advantage, believe it or not, because we're used to working in cohabitations when it comes to working in teams in professional capacities or when it comes to working on projects as a group we're actually very capable of that already because our whole lives have worked around that point of okay this is where i can go up to individually but then this is the point where i need to go to the collective and get that help i found that that's actually been quite useful so a lot of people i've noticed like myself being a, a good example, I've heard this quite a lot that people find it very easy to, to get along with me. and find it quite easy to have a, have a relationship with me, even if it's just a, a friendly chat or if it's a, 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 deep, a much more romantic thing. It's, I'm a very easygoing person. I'm very easy to be around because I know where my own limitations are because I'm constantly searching to find out where they are and where they've changed or where they might have adjusted from. And it kind of feeds into that whole, like you say, that collectivist society and that idea of individuals versus independence. And a lot of people, I feel, get the two of them mixed up or two of them very similar. And like that, that idea of like situation versus circumstance, I might actually do that, might probably give me the inspiration for my next post, that kind of independence versus individuality. And that being an individual doesn't mean that you need to do everything by yourself. And same as like independence doesn't mean that you're doing everything by yourself; but you can still do it with a group. It's still, right. They're not one and the same.
1: Right i I complete I completely agree. You know, and uh, you, you know, so now that you're now that you're here in the states, maybe let's let's, um, into another topic, which is, so tell us about what you think of Oregon and, and what you did out there in the West, and then. Tell us, if you want, what you're doing in Virginia and what your perceptions are of life here in the States.
2: Well, the first part of that one was quite easy to answer, the Oregon trip. Then I went out there with my girlfriend and had an absolutely wonderful time. We were out there for about nine days total, and it was just a constant string of activities and events and parties and meeting peoples and family events and meals and it was absolutely fantastic. I had a really, really lovely time. Um, I was very fortunate that with the level of eyesight I still have, um, one of the big things that I've always kind of considered to be the sign of a world traveler is being able to or as having experienced the sunset on both the sunset and sunrise on both the Pacific and Atlantic. So I'd seen the sun rise on the Pacific in Shanghai and seen it set in Liverpool on the Atlantic. And then from New York and North Carolina and Florida even, i have been able to see it rise on the Atlantic, but I'd yet to see it set on the Pacific. So that was one of my big things that I wanted to check off, my kind of bucket list thing in that way of someone like me who had aspirations of maybe seeing five or six different countries have now gone and travelled quite literally around the world. I've seen the sun rise and set in some of the largest locations on the earth. I thought it was a really big achievement for me. The other lovely thing that we did was we went out for a meal and it was a, a meal that was kind of embedded into the cliffside and it looked out over the bay, um like a natural bay, not a marina. And from there you could see in the distance whales diving to to eat and their spouts louding up and the reflection of the water as it glinted off of the, the tips of waves and the sun as it started to move towards the, the horizon, that's when we packed up and moved down to the beach so we could stand there. And have it, when it touched the horizon, we would be there right at its lowest point. So that was incredible. Um, the other thing that I really enjoyed about it was seeing my my partner's family. Um, I'm from quite a, a small family. You know, but I've got one immediate one immediate brother, one one blood kin, and two stepsisters. So you know, I'm quite a family-oriented person, or at least. In my mind I am, I do care very much for my family. But when I went out there there was, the mother was one of five and the father was one of eight and they all had cousins and the grandmothers were still around and they had sisters who had four children and it was, it was absolutely inundated. It must have meant something like 35 to 50 different family members of various sizes, degrees, abilities, ages, you know, people who had, um Asperger's, people who were, you know, recovering coming from operations, people who were young, or old, people who were ministers, people who were devoutly atheist, you know it was was a complete (laughs) mix
1: you're a wonderful so you're a great speaker you really you really told (laughs) you're really telling the story yeah well but you know if there's if there's a big family like that if you end up with 50 people some of them some of them are going to have to love god the others are nowhere nowhere no way no way and no how going to believe in God or anything if you have that many people. Yeah. You know the, the the probability wheel starts spinning there. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: The variance the the variance of people was fantastic, and also like I've never obviously as you know, in um, American football is American football. It's it's not anywhere else really in the world. i have never seen even in a, a high school game or a pee wee game or a college game or anything to that start outside of brief glimpses on the television. So I was actually able to watch a high school game and really got involved in it. And you can see why it's such a you know, a family moment. Everyone came down, the brothers, sisters, aunties, uncles, and even grandnephews, who was like, two and a half months old. Everyone was sitting there cheering along, though I think the baby might have just been cheering about the fact that everyone else was cheering. <laughs> but um, that, that was really good. That was a lovely thing to do. And, and the other thing that happened, which I've not done since I was oh, 19. I'm now 25, so good six years now. As I went on, uh, went out dancing in nightclubs and and uh, going to bars and restaurants, and that was a that was a change from back then. That was a, again, that was that situation versus circumstance that I hadn't really expected to find myself ever in again. But I really enjoyed myself. Um, and uh, once I came back, now I'm I'm now back in Virginia, and I'm staying here for a couple of months and trying just to build a relationship with my with my partner, and. Segwaying back a little bit onto the, 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 the course that I'm setting up, this package that I'm setting up, um, this Mindset Training Package, uh, that's what I'm developing here, and one of the, the gentlemen I'm staying with, uh, my gran- one of my grandfather's friends, he uh, knows people and has worked quite a lot with the VA society, and when he heard about what I was developing, he thought, wow, this would be fantastic to get involved with that, because with my Specific experiences, and my specific eyesight, and my specific mindset. That idea of I was, had my eyes set on this, to do this, I wanted to do A, B and C, and with my eyesight slowly failing, I had to give things up gradually. So I know what it's like to have your life change out of your control, because you build your, you, you, you build the bedrock of your life around your job, around what you think you're able to do, and you can like, right, I've got my life set for the next five, ten years, and suddenly something comes along and it's, taken away and that's that level of relatability he said is something that they really struggle with because someone comes in with their fancy phd diploma thing you know with a cap on and has never actually experienced anything that they have experienced and goes well how do you feel about that and they just instantly go on the defensive of well you don't actually know how i feel because you're having to ask all these questions you can't relate you can't even give me a single situation or circumstance that would relate to me in the slightest That's what I was developing in this course, and that was the post. That was part of the post that came out that you and I first made contact over.
1: Indeed, indeed. So, okay, what is mindset training? Um, Go ahead, tell me about this course. How does it work? Um, Where did you get this idea from? Talk about that for a while.
2: Okay, Um, well, the mindset training idea came from this idea that imposter syndrome had become almost a plague. In the world now and it's so destroying to see because people sell themselves so short like they feel that they're not what, what gives me the right what gives me the qualification I I'm just I'm just a nobody I'm just X what gives how can I possibly relate to why and it's it's so hard to see that it, it became quite prevel- prevalent when I moved over into the full visually impaired communities and the, and the blind communities because a lot of them a lot of people feel that their eyesight means that they can't, or they shouldn't, or they won't, and that their disability becomes the main reason that they can't, or they shouldn't try anything because well, I'm just bound to fail. And I find that really hard to, hard to swallow, and it's really upsetting to see sometimes these wonderful people with aspirations, with dreams, with creativity, with humour, with lives, and they just drift along. And it's no hard it's not because of them. I feel that we're just not taught it. We're not taught this sort of stuff in schools. We're never given any of this how to think through our things. you know in school you get taught trigonometry and algebra. I've never used trigonometry in my life, but understanding how to overcome difficult situations, how to deal with hardship and circumstances, how to react to react to turbulent emotions, that sort of stuff we're just not taught because how do you test it? So that's what I started developing, and the whole idea behind it was, quite literally, the welcome to week one. This week will be predominantly about explaining our, uh, exploring, uh, sorry, expanding our understanding of what it is you wish to gain from this course. But we'll also begin to elaborate on some of the terminology you'll be coming into contact with through uh, throughout the pack. As is always the case, it is good to know what it is you're getting into before we go into it. There's that idea of, I guess you want to understand a couple of different models of mindfulness, and that idea of um, what what is the difference between situations and circumstances we've kind of briefly gone over, and then as part of the pack, there's uh, interactive challenges that start really training your mind to think differently. I've got a really good example I actually did with someone not so long ago, and I posed the question, you know, uh, we're talking about art, and we're talking about how if it's you, the person found it ludicrous that someone would pay so much money to buy something in a, in a, in a convenience store or in a, in, a, in a kiosk at the side of some form of Smithsonian Museum. And I said to them, well, isn't it really their choice of what they find beautiful? And as said, well, I suppose that's kind of the idea of art is so good about that. You know, different people can find different things in art. And I pointed out that, well, isn't that then up to the person how much what they consider good art and what you consider good art? is that idea of being able to see both sides of the argument and taking both both sides into account before making decisions and that's predominantly what the mindset training goes into and um, the, the first part of it is uh, thinking about thinking and that idea of okay, I'll give you one of the challenges actually Aaron
0: here's, here's, a, here's an
2: easy one for you to do so we've got the mighty oak tree or the swaying palm the challenge this is the second challenge that ever comes up and so take a moment to think of as many descriptors as you can to describe it, the mighty oak tree. How I many can you come up with in a minute? And then what okay. sort of things do we typically attribute to them? The, what, what kind of characteristics and why? So have, have, a, have, a, have, a, have a quick list of them for me. So it's the mighty oak. What, what comes to mind when you think of the big oak tree? What comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I think excellent. Yeah. I think of a big tree that casts a shadow if I walk under it, a big tree with a big shadow, dark, rich bark, big, strong branches, um, perhaps birds, perhaps squirrels, perhaps reptiles might be living in that particular tree or some animals might make it home. That's really what comes to my mind. So a big tree like that would be a symbol mm-hmm. of, of America's naturalism and, and nature and being at peace with with nature. Um, but I yeah, have really good really good thank, ones. <laughs> thank you. So what, what answer, what now, what answer are you looking for? What, what answers do you, do you look for? What answers do most people say? So this is kind of, it's, it's
2: a really good point. It brings me on to this next bit. It's, it's like, so I can like give this, give this opportunity to list a couple of things and you write a couple of things down. and you say, right. Okay. So that's what I think of. That's what my mind take currently. That's the pathway that my mind goes down. So, why do we attribute these sorts of characteristics to these things? What is it that we identify with? What is it that the, the parable we're exploring to come up with? And how do these descriptors the come about? And then what is it that we want what is it that we want to see in an object is more often the things that come about. And the initial question still remains, what is a good mindset? And a simple answer is that there isn't one rather there were many mindsets that are useful for different for different situations. While one mindset may be useful for one situation, it might not be useful for another. So the key then is to have an adaptive mindset, a flexible one, and that's the whole idea of what the
1: mighty oak versus
2: the palm tree. Outstanding. outstanding,
1: Really, really, really cool. Really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So by having a conversation with someone, you're able to basically create kind of in my mind, you're able to create an equation that helps to relax their mind and helps to kind of bend their mind around. Think about it. That helps to flex their mind, flex their mental muscle, I guess.
2: Exactly, because
1: really you know, there's little cool.
2: point in never training someone to do something one thing, because our lives and our minds never do just one thing, our minds Precisely. are continually, you know, they're continually evaluating, they're continually evolving, they're always weighing probabilities and cause and effect and balancing responsibility and desire, you know, and then suddenly come along with, you know, people having a one-track mind, we always talk about that being such a mm. bad thing to have, mm. and you know, I, I i'm okay. really i'm really like i'm
1: really liking i'm really liking your material because this is already helping me because i i um i will tell you that um i consider myself in my opinion um i relate to uh being an aspie i consider myself to be someone who is uh very mild extremely mildly autistic and on the asperger's uh spectrum um mm. it's it's now that I said it, you'll be able to kind of tell based on how I talk and how I address certain things. It's kind of noticeable once I mention it. It's not always noticeable. Sometimes it kind of hides, but I, I completely understand. I completely understand the, the the value behind this. That when you're able to allow someone else to, to think about the different ways that they can use their brain to think about one thing, a tree. There's a lot. There's a lot of of interesting things. By the way, do you want to know my answer for for the palm tree?
2: Go ahead.
1: So for the palm tree, the swaying palm tree, there's one. There's one word, only one word, that I would I would write down for you if I was your student in okay. the class. I would write down utopia.
2: <laughs> the idea of the utopian beach. I'm imagining the the coconuts and the shade.
1: And the the association is that if you're living on an island, you're living on the historically famous and ancient and mythical island of Utopus. I'm sure you mm-hmm. know, James. And for our listeners who do not know, Utopus is where is a mythical society. It could have existed. Who knows? Probably did. Who knows? Um, it's a mythical society that li- lived, I guess, thousands of years ago. And the, the people were, were, were really utopian. They lived on an island called Utopus. Um, so that's where we get the word utopia from. And the association is that if you think of a palm tree, you think of being either one of two things. Either very, either you're very corrupt and you're fleeing from your country and your family. Or you're very old and successful and you're still done with your country and family and you're you're ready to retire on an island. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. So but but for me but for me the one that but for me for me the one that I felt better about, I guess, the one that the one that I relate to more was, was the, was the mighty oak tree though, because it's a much more relatable issue. It relates to my love for animals and nature. Mm-hmm. So although, although I wish I was living on a place like Utopus in a way, I'm kind of glad I'm not because that can actually get really boring really quickly. Um It's mm-hmm. interesting. I've been to that region before. I've seen palm trees. It's interesting, but, you would not necessarily want to live in places like that your your entire life. So I okay. I'm already I'm already really liking uh this this philosophy this this philosophy class that you basically want to develop. And I can totally see um how it would help a lot of people. Definitely would help people uh with disabilities, people with Asperger's, people with a lot of different uh, well, people mm-hmm. with a lot of different situations and then uh, the other group of people have a lot of different circumstances. So it would probably help yes. a lot of those people, but you know, um, so, so how are you going to go about marketing this, this course? Um, I, I'm, I'm suspicious that, you know, you seem to be, um, you know, are, are, are you, are you a professor by trade? Are you a teacher by trade? How did you get so I deep into know. this su- subject? Tell me, tell us all about that. Well, this
2: is it's a slightly longer story, but I'm happy to share it. Um, you can I talk, talk, as much as,
1: talk as much as you want, James. So I, 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 want, <laughs> I, I want I want you to make the short story long. So to make a short story long, go ahead.
2: Okay. So to make a short story, well, a long story as it is, I went to university in 2012. I went to the university in Liverpool. I won't name the direct universities. as a few in Liverpool, but I went to a university in Liverpool. That's fine. And after, That's the fine. First, after the first year of it, the course was drastically changed into what we had originally signed up for. I had originally signed up to go into the, the theory of education, and that included both the philosophy, the psychology, the history, and the sociology of how to be a teacher and what education's role is in the wider world. Not specifically to be a teacher as such, but it meant that if I wanted to be a teacher by the end... I would take a one-year uh, QTS course, which is a qualified teaching certificate, um, and then I would be able to teach um, as a general needs teacher. So something, I suppose, rather than be specialized in a high school where you teach one subject, you're very good at teaching one subject, I'd be much more what you'd be considered middle school or primary school, where you teach a broad range of subjects to all ability levels. And as part of my degree, as part of my um, knowing the theory of education, I was able to take up a, a, a minor, what it what they would be called a minor in the States, and that was in disability studies. So that was about the laws and about how disability okay. activism comes out. And that's what I got involved in the first place. However, Great. that first year, after that, they drastically changed how the finances of the university would be allocated and a lot of courses a lot of subjects and a lot of teaching styles and a lot of teaching methods had been cut so we've pretty much been given the option of you reset your first year and accrue another load of another year's worth of student debt, which we were all rather unhappy about or we make that minor into a second degree now we don't do we don't do degrees the same way as you do in the United States. I did a little bit of study abroad so I can, I can kind of create a, a, a relation. So you have general things like your general education. So it's, uh, everyone needs to do a gym class. Everyone needs to do a Spanish class. Everyone needs to do a psychology class. Everyone needs to do a chemistry class, that sort of thing. We don't do that in the United Kingdom. What we have instead is we have an entire self-contained unit where it's uh, designed around lectures, self-research, uh, tutorials where you're in a group of maybe a maximum of about 10 and one tutor where you go into deeper reading where they suggest readings and they give you give your readings to do and you have workshops where you go as a larger group a group of maybe three or four tutorials together and work through what you have just what you have found from your tutorials and put it into larger academic circles that brings you back into next week's um, lecture and get you prepared that's how we do it so when I say that that minor had been bumped up to another degree, I'm not talking about having to take an extra one or two classes. I'm actually talking about as if you went to, I don't know, the University of New York and the University of Boston at the same time. So I ended up having to do two degrees side by side. And because of that, I ended up having to specialise so rather than doing all of the theory of education, rather than doing all of history, sociology, psychology and philosophy. I went more specifically into philosophy and psychology, and that ended up coming out with my degree so I have a philosophy I have a degree in philosophy and psychology in education and I have a separate degree in disability studies that's kind of how I suppose I built up so much of this course because as a teacher and knowing how to teach and knowing how to make things relatable to people and understanding how not only that you need to have some level of self-research and you kind of go away and absorb it in your own head in your own time it's good to have that that course relation that that relationship with your tutor that ability to ask questions okay i went not and read of this i really don't understand what you're going with here i was thinking of something like this am i on the right tracks or am i going in the wrong direction that's why i've developed the course to have this kind of package and conference call sort of style to it so that no matter where you are in the world, you can link into this, uh, into this course and you'd be able to join in with it uh, depending, so long as you're able to make the, the the time of when the class would be running.
1: Mm. Mm. Well, by the way, I studied abroad at the University of East Anglia, so I'm definitely familiar with how things are in the UK and you're absolutely right. Um, so that's, this is, this is really fascinating, James. How are you going to go about, uh, promoting, you know, promoting this, this particular course? Um,
2: well, one of the big things is, ironically, actually, what we started talking about and what this all, what we got together about, it was, it's kind of marketing that idea of what is the difference between situation and circumstance and that idea of, the, the literal of the literal definition direction of a circ, of a situation is that is a manner of being situated location or position with reference to environment so that's kind of a bit vague so I simplify that down to the situation um uh, the situation of the house allowed for a beautiful a beautiful view or a place or locality condition case plight he is in a desperate situation. The state of affairs, combination of circumstances, the present international situation is dangerous. So that was kind of like the idea of what the situation would be. And then the circumstance is a condition, a detail, part or an attribute in respect to time, place, manner, event, etc. That accompanies uh, or determines or is modifies the fact or event. So that idea of a situation is an event, whereas a circumstance is a detail, an agent, a place or something in respect to time that modifies it. So when I was kind of like thinking of how I would market this, I would kind of put that out there for the people that were looking to build this kind of idea of a deeper understanding of how, I suppose, society runs a little bit, that idea of I'm feel adrift i feel lost i don't have a place right now. i don't know where i can go i don't understand where i should be going this is a really good one for that because it helps anchor you within yourself i found that quite a lot of people look around and look for to find places to, to latch onto, to hold on to to have a place of so this is where i belong because this is here this is i belong here because i've got that and that sort of changes across this course where i start pointing out that if you are happy within yourself, you have a, a general sense of this, I feel good in my own head, then it doesn't matter what is going on around you, you feel like you have a sense of belonging. So it's that kind of, I could, I originally thought of uh, advertising it to people who had impairments, who had disabilities, who felt that, who, who felt disabled. And I was going to show them that the dis- you're, you don't actually have a disability, you in fact only have an impairment. That society, that your situation, that the circumstances that arise, that the situations that you find yourself in are disabling you. It's, you have an impairment. I'm not going to argue with you. You have a visual impairment. You can't get around that. Your eyes do not work as they should work. As biology says and dictates, they should work. Yours are doing that. That's an impairment. That's a fact. You can't get around that. However, the disability is, if no one in the world could drive and everything was revolved around self-driving cars, would a person who's blind be disabled and not be able to travel as much. No, because society is set up that way. So it's that idea of helping people who have any form of impairment switch from thinking and viewing themselves in a negative way and thinking about themselves more positively. When it came into light that the V.A.'s association had this kind of this this reach, this this gap of there's no one relatable that a lot of people are falling through it and kind of like just drifting through the counselling and that they helped because. The counselling isn't really targeting their mindset, it's targeting their emotions, it's targeting how they feel about themselves, which is great. I'm not disagreeing with that. You know, my mum my is a cognitive behavioural psychotherapist, so I think it's incredibly good to have that behavioural element. However, cognitive behavioural therapy combines cognition and behaviour in a therapy, whereas a lot of the time it seems that behaviour is a thing of, I can give you the great example, how does that make you feel? Now, I feel angry because I've got something that I can't control. Now, that anger stems from, one, what you can't control, but then we can't control a sunset, we can't control when it rains, and not many people get furious over a sunset. It's more about the fact of it's your internal, how you think on what has happened to you. And that's where I believe I'm going to be able to make a difference and maybe be able to help people.
1: I agree. Um, and I certainly hope so too i I hope that one of i mean i mean the many things – I can give you a lot of advice, but I think one thing um, that you might want to might want to consider if you if you are not already if you're not already doing it is to obviously start obviously start podcasting um, because podcasting is number one it's a great hobby uh, it's a wonderful activity to do, and it's a way to you know to connect with basically a, a limitless audience audience from all walks of mm-hmm. life from all over the world i'm kind of surprised you know i'm in a couple of broadcasting and podcast groups and um there's a lot of people <clears throat> there's a lot of people who spend uh, a lot of time listening to podcasts um for many for many many reasons they might be Bored. They might need. I think one of the reasons why people love podcasts is I think that people are, are busy, and I think sometimes they need something to kind of listen to in the background to help them, as you would say, to help them to cope um, with whatever situation they might find themselves in. And I think that podcasting is, is still popular today. Um, it's been going, podcasts have been going on as far as I'm concerned, James, since probably the 1990s or even the upper 1980s. Uh, but until very recently, podcasting has not been something that everyone can participate in until only a couple of years ago, did certain apps like Anchor and Skype really get good enough and user friendly enough where everybody can just, everybody can participate and have their own way and their own influence. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the really, really fascinating part. Part. So when I when I publish when I publish our our show, um, I mean, it's going to go out to you know several several major broadcasting groups, and, and several mm-hmm. groups on Facebook with well over it's going to go out to about five thousand people, um, when you think about it. Um, but um, one one concern it's it's not a concern. One one question that I would have for you is. And I'm not not being critical. I'm being philosophical and asking it because you have to think Mm -hmm. from the perspective of of a business and and teacher, how would you go about marketing your course, which is a wonderful idea, by the way, how would you go about marketing it to, to people with disabilities? The reason I think it's important to think about this is because some people with disabilities, certainly not all, but some of them and many of them struggle to find meaningful work. So my only, Mm -hmm. my only query, my only, my only question, my only, yeah, my only query would be how would someone who perhaps, um, for, for, for circumstances that are out of their control, how would they Mm -hmm. go about, you know, really about paying, paying for your course and getting involved in the course even if they could not pay? Um, because, and I'm, I'm saying this to you because I'm telling you that this is going to be an obstacle that you will, you will face. A lot of people are okay. struggling financially, even in the United States. So so what do you mm-hmm. think about that?
2: Well, I'm well aware of that, and it is kind of the, the harsh reality of, of having an industry-driven society where everything is you need to pay for services and goods. And my initial hope in the marketing aspect of things is to reach out to larger societies that already cater to people who have impairments and disabilities, and that that would be able to fund it on their behalf. So, for example, the VA's association is why why I've latched on so well to that is because there are people there that are in need of help, and it is already a community, it's already a group, it's already an establishment that a lot of people can get involved with. And once they hear about it, the news will spread. On a more individualised level, I'm not entirely sure to be completely fair. It was one that is thing fine. that I have to think about on. One of the big things that I've been looking into is that, um, I did a subsidiary diploma in public speaking not so long ago, and one of the big things that they did was they did a gradual payment method that you pay, you pay for the course as you went along, and that way you're right, okay, so you can pay for this part of the course, and right, okay, if you don't feel like it's going well, then you can obviously drop out and you can get your money back, whereas this one, my course has been designed to be completed in uh, like it's got four individualized weeks so that you need to complete week one before you can complete week two. And that's just simply because we're building upon things that you learn in each week. So someone could come along and say, right, OK, I'm not able to pay the full amount in one go. Is there a way we can split this out? And we'll oh, more than certainly. So the first payment comes in, right? okay welcome into week one's class and then the next week, OK, I'm not able to make it this week, but I'll be able to make it next week. Great, no problem. We'll go into that then. We'll because we'll, I run, I'll be running this, you know, continually across across a year. So there's that idea of it, it's it's flexible enough to fit people's needs. Or at least I'm going to try and make it that way to be flexible enough to meet people's needs. So that if a person can afford one week and not the next week, they could do that. They can uh, they can they can buy and purchase what they feel they want to learn it and what they and learn at their own pace because that's one of the big things I've always, and that's one of the big reasons I'm not a teacher, is that I hate this farmed-for-your-intelligence sort of atmosphere that's been generated around teaching. Yeah, yeah. You give the crop, which is the children, the least amount of nourishment possible to save on funds. You've only got one teacher doing everything possible to teach these kids and make sure they grow properly. At the end of the year, they get harvested, and the ones that don't make the cut are dropped into some form of remedial or lesser ability, whereas actually more than often than not, it's the fact of they just need being taught in a different way. So that's why I want to make it so much more individualized experience. Sure, it will be done in groups. The conference calls are going to have to be done in groups because I'm only one person, and until I get other staff and I get other people involved, I won't be able to do that sort of thing. But the idea is that being able to have the the course and be able to read it at your own rate, being able to understand it the, and assimilate the information and then come to the conference call when you feel you're ready and then move on to the next week when you feel that you're ready. And only when you feel that like you're ready and paying only for what you need. That's the idea that I've got
1: behind it. Really? So Thank you so for the question. Right. Yeah, that's really outstanding. Um, that could work. Um, but oftentimes, with the way that the industries are set up these days, they don't really want people to pay as they go, because then the companies feel they lose out, they lose more that way, you know. So, I mean, that, it, it would be nice if it worked out that way, but I'm 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 that for that I I, I do not know. Um, <laughs> Oh, 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 bless you. No worries. No, that happens to me all the time. Bless you. I was wondering what that was. Um, This is this is all this is all really, 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 really fascinating stuff. And I I really appreciate the analogy that you drew between, you know, the the teacher is the farmer and the children are the crops, you know, That is, Mm -hmm. that is true. That is true. And I will tell you that in my opinion, I think that the United States really needs to improve the education system for children, not just for universities, but for children Mm -hmm. as a whole. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of holes in that Swiss cheese. There's a lot of problems that need to be filled (laughs) in, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't
2: want to. I don't want to be too negative on things because I I only had a limited experience. I came and studied abroad for six months. But when I came in my second year of university across to a university in New York, I was pushed into the master's level classes to get the same equivalent education standard, which shows that there's a couple of years discrepancy between the two. And then I still felt that it was quite easy. You know, I was 20 I think it might be 19 or, I think it was 19 at the time, maybe, it's 19 soon to be turning 20 by the time I left, and I'm sitting in a room full of 24 and 25 year old adults, and they're sitting there raising their hand because, yes, teacher, teacher, pick me, I know the answer. That felt very much like going back to high school. I hadn't done that for about four years.
1: Yeah, that point yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they run, and that's how it is. And the the what she picked up on was that the the maturity of the university students in the United States is incredibly low and childish, because that's how people are. And unfortunately, what happens is the K to twelve education system uh, in the states is. Just there's just so many problems that by the time you get to college to the to the uni as you call it but in the states university, um, people are really not able to function uh, very well yet at that at that age. So that's why they acted like that, and I, I'm sure that was very annoying for you. Um, but yeah, people in the United States will grow up very very slowly, very slowly. <laughs> I
2: mean, um, it's, it's, I don't think it's a fault of the person, I don't think it's a fault of any one system, it's just a general cultural idea of, right, okay, so in other nations, there's that idea you need to grow up fast because of so many other things that need to be done, there's other pressures going on, whereas in America right. and the Western world, it's very lucky that we don't have to have that, you know, we have the we have the luxury of being able to take our time and there's was a parable that was once said in one of my philosophy classes, which kind of rings tr- very true here, is that people tend to only develop to the lowest standard they need to, and it's that way well, of right. I don't need to be more right. mature because everyone else is as mature, and that's what's expected of me. Whereas if you're expected to, I mean, people of a similar age in 18, 19, 20, you go into the military, and they're very mature, they're very professional, and that's because that's the standard that they expect. and Again, it's just the culture of the institutions that you that you find
1: yourself in. There you go, exactly. And the the institution of of the military and the institution of the university are two totally different things. So, you know, there's there's almost no comparison between the two. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that that would be that would be just, the case.
2: Despite the idea of different similar ages, you're not really similar people. And that's like, no. again your, your life experiences sure. and the situations that you find yourself in, the circumstances that you face. You're going to be different people. And again, it's it's so true how how this whole how how our lives revolve around this 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 distinction.
1: Right, exactly. Right. And how our whole <laughs> lives revolve around the the fact that, as I tell my students, there are always things that happen in life that are out of our control. And I think that this is a critically important thing to accept, that there are things that I'm sure happened to you that were out of your control. And there were things that happened to me that were completely out of my control. But there's absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing I could have done or can do or will do about it now, because this this is how life is, this is how life works. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But there's, two, there's a saying in the world that says there's only two things that you can control. It's how you think, it's how you act to other people and how you react to how other people act towards you. And I think that's really it's true. It's 100% accurate. At the end and of the day, you can't control how other person are going to think, how they're going to behave, how they're going to feel. All you can do is how I feel and how I hold myself as one thing right. and how the person, how other people's actions interact with me.
1: Right, mm-hmm. or or in right. in America we say in a similar way, we say the only person I can control is me, so I better be my best. Yes, yes, yeah. and, and
2: that's again. Course, again, something I talk about in the course is <laughs> in, in that idea of you know you need to understand that you don't control the sunset, you don't control the rain, and yet somehow we get annoyed, anxious, or Depressed when things don't go the way we want it, and we feel that we don't have control over something, our anxiety skyrockets. But at the end of the day, we can only control how we act, how we interact.
1: Right, right, I- I- exactly, exactly. This is this is very true. And um, what do you think to the fact that people have different moods at different times of the year? Many um, different seasons. What, what do you think about that?
2: Oh, I uh, think that's coming into a slightly di- bigger philosophical and psychological aspect of it. And I'm not saying that our environment doesn't have an influence on how we how we feel, because it does. If you you know get caught in a sudden downpour without an umbrella, without a rain jacket, you're going to feel bad. I'm more advocating that our feelings shouldn't have a huge impact on how we think I'm still going to try and think positively on what things are going on I shouldn't become a different person just because my environment just because my situation has changed and um, the circumstance being I've been caught in a rainport right okay that's going to affect my mood it's going to affect how I'm going to uh, how I'm going to act but still me as a person how I think is going to be one thing um, on a slightly more you know medical level I suppose and uh, you know the, the psychology of things, is that people feel better when they're comfortable, and why I find it very strange is that you have testing at winter time when kids are freezing, and then in the summertime when they're too hot. And you think, right, okay, why are these kids having such difficulty at some point of the year? Well, that's precisely why. <laughs> you know, you're going to you're going to do better when you feel comfortable. You're not going to function. That's why that you become familiar with the situation in the Army or the military or any form of armed service, you become familiar with your equipment. The more familiar you are with it, the more at ease you are with it, the better you're able to use your equipment to do your job, to do the task assigned to you. Whereas if you're afraid to new recruit, you're dropped into something and said right, okay, off to war you go, they're not going to be comfortable. They're not going to do well in any, in, in, on any metric unless they are someone who has Privately, or in or on an individual level, had had experiences that have geared them towards it with with a greater degree. I don't think I'd feel very comfortable sitting down in a war zone with a sniper rifle because, well, I can't see for one thing, but <laughs> I've never fired a gun.
1: Right. This is this is the case. This is this is true. All all, all very true. So, do you think? A country as a whole would see would get more out of their students if the students I don't know went to school more in the summer months and took off more time in the winter. What What do you think?
2: I don't really think it's a case of time should be the metric that we measure students' ability by. As you have this much time to do this much work. If you don't do it, you fail, and that's not fair on anybody. Because I went from being an A plus student at the end of high school. And we have a, at the end of high school I was 16, and in England they have a two-year gap system to kind of further specialise you to get ready for your degree, because as I said, the the UK doesn't have a lot of prerequisites and a lot of gen eds in their university courses. It's very, it's very specified, so you need to have specific abilities before you can even get to university. So I went from being an A-star student, an A-plus student in mathematics at the end of high school at 16, And then one year later, at 17, I failed mathematics. Now, that's not because of me. That's not because of my mental ability. It was down to the fact that the teacher wasn't very good. and I didn't have enough time to get on. I didn't have enough time to really assess and and do well with the course. So my utopia kind of idea wouldn't be that it's a time-based system. It's a, right, okay, this is the work that you have to do. You do it until you are comfortable with it. And then at that point, you progress on further. If you go on to the next next piece, the next task, you build up your knowledge by layering things. It's actually called in, in in psychology. It's called the zone of proximal development. It's that idea that you have what you know, and then further from that kind of central orb, and the, and the next ring is the area of things that you kind of understand. You can kind of take a good guess at, but you're not really too sure about. And then further out of that is I don't understand this. I can't possibly do that. So we don't start off knowing how to do calculus we can steadily learn to get to that level. We just take different times and different paths and different routes to get there. However, the standardized education system where everyone wants to be measured against one another means that we have one test, which means we have one time to do this one test. And if people aren't able to do that one test, then they're marked as not good. Whereas I feel that one test and in general testing in general isn't a good metric of anyone's intelligence. It's the continual assessment, that idea of across the year, you continue to work through a, a course load at the end of the year, right? Okay, are you able to progress onto the next class or the next teacher? Well, you've still got a little bit more to do. Okay, we'll take another couple of months, right? Okay, you're ready. Now you go on to the next teacher. It doesn't really matter what time of year those assessments are taken at because you're doing it continually. Once you reach that point of, I understand this topic, you move on to the next one. I remember in primary school, middle school, elementary school, I'm not sure what age range it would be, but at the end of every quarter, my teacher would do a review of what we'd done to figure out where people weren't quite up with. And most people, most of the class, were the most recent thing that we did was a thing that most people had difficulty with. And those that were lower down on the achievements, in air quotes, uh, level were the ones that had difficulties further back in what I'd been taught because there were still gaps in their knowledge. You can't build upwards on an unstable platform. So that's why they were having difficulty to understand how to do general multiplications or algebra because they didn't understand basic formula.
1: Right. Right. All all really all really fascinating stuff. All all really all really interesting. So what are some um So, you know, so what are some interesting uh, philosophical or educational or psychological problems or mysteries that you, James, hope to solve for society?
2: Um, Well, one of my major ones that I kind of want to tackle is, I think I mentioned it, I touched upon it very briefly, is imposter syndrome and that idea of what gives me the right? Am I worthy enough? I don't have the qualification for now. That has become incredibly prevalent in society as the idea of you need to be educated enough to do something. And you can go four years and have at the end of it a degree and a bit of paper and a nice shiny hat and a stamp that says you are able to learn. You are able to learn all this information. You then can't really go straight into being a doctor. Because you still don't actually have any experience with it, you take multiple multiple years of medical school and then you go into a hospital and you shadow someone who's more experienced as they teach you the roles teach you the the actual experience that what that will that will test you through and, and and push you through the rest of your career now that I feel is what it should be more about. It shouldn't be this idea of I need to be qualified to do this. What gives me the right to do this? Your own experiences give you the right to do that. Your own drive is enough to say that if you want to learn something and you have the drive to go learn something, go and learn it. And that is something that I said earlier. It's really soul-destroying to see in so many people this. I can't because I have an impairment. I'm not able to do this because I can't do this. And it's that way of, just, I know in myself. Um, one, before I went to China, and had a very difficult experience there. I used to use my impairment as a kind of a bit of a crutch. I kind of realised that I could get away with not really pushing myself because yeah. other people would do it for me more happily. And I fell into the trap that I found myself in in this comfort zone, this kind of idea of. Well, I I know what I'm able to do, and I know I could probably do that. I don't really want to give myself the hardship. I don't really want to test and see if I can still do that. I just let someone else do it, and I started building up that kind of attitude in myself, so that when this very very difficult situation happened in China, I was astonished at what I was able to accomplish and the hardships that I overcame, and. Don't get me wrong, I was proud of what I'd done beforehand. I'd, I'd done quite a lot and, I, you know, I'd done that idea of, oh, that's very good for someone with a visual impairment. I'd kind of been happy with that, that insult. Yeah, that's really that, that's really good for someone who's blind. Oh, that's really good for someone who can't see. I wanted that to be that very impressive period. I didn't want to have that distinction mm-hmm. of, yeah, you're doing really okay for someone with less ability. No, I don't want to have that, that marker, that, that that characteristic that defines me. I want to have this ability that anyone, regardless of if they have an impairment or not, looks at me and goes, wow, he's done a lot. So I guess that's kind of what I'm going to go into. Um, and with this course, this course that I'm trying to develop, I'm, I'm hoping that I can, I can instill that in other people. Um... My my China trip was beyond difficult. and um, to give you some of the, the, the highlights of it in, in the quick if you want to go into it in, in a second you're more than welcome. But um I I got to my I went out there to teach English, got to my school and within two weeks I was homeless, penniless, living under a ping pong table and had only eaten the you know that grey, dark black bit of bone that's left on your KFC? I was eating that from other people's trays because I was so hungry. And it all happened within two weeks of me arriving in this foreign country where I didn't speak any of the language. And I can't
1: see all that well. I see, I see. Well, that's that's interesting. So, where in China did you go?
2: Um, so, I went to the province of Hunan to the um, Hingyang, which is the city. Um, the province uh, is kind of like the the central province, central state of China. And I arrived there and, as I said, quite literally, things fell apart from the get-go. I I arrived in Shanghai for my connecting internal flight and my suitcase didn't turn up. And that was kind of like the first of the small woes that was kind of like rock me and slowly slowly developed me into this incredible hardship where I was fighting and struggling for my life. Um, uh, by the end of the month, or the, the month and the bet that I, that I was out there, eventually managed to get home, and my cousin, who lived in London, because I managed to get a flight to London, the cheapest one I could get, picked me up from the airport and took me back to their house. I slept for about 24 hours, and in the meantime, that cousin had called up my mother and said, I'm just going to make sure he eats, because he's he's lost quite a bit of weight. Now, I'm not <laughs> particularly but to begin with, I'm a skinny string bean of a person, you know, I'm, I'm six foot two and weigh 145 pounds. So I'm quite skinny and quite slight, a lot of my weight comes from, you know, gym exercises and muscle mass and have a lot of like fatty reserves. So when I came back and I look at the pictures of myself back then, you, you can see ribs, you can see my spine down my back through, poking through my skin. Now, I'd lost a lot of weight. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. That's, that's really, really interesting. So how long did you end up staying in China before you had to leave?
2: So it wasn't a case of before I had to leave. It was when I was able to escape. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I, to, do the, to do the full speech, um, I had finished up my master's degree. I'd had an international master's of business administration, And I was 21, 22, and I started looking for a job, you know, joining the workforce like anyone would want to. I went onto a job website, and I typed into it, and it said, teach English in China. And I thought, great, that's fantastic. That's exactly what I want to do, because I love traveling. You know, I love seeing different cultures. I love seeing different people. You know, I love different different kind of food. You know, Chinese food was a big selling point for me. I thought, fantastic. So I signed off, and before I knew it, I was on the plane heading out there. You know, things went by in a blur. It was that way of, I got the visa, got the flight, got the passport, got everything done. It was one clap, 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 and I got on the plane. And I remember on the plane thinking, it's going to be so amazing, because I'd searched where my school was based. And if I had, like... You know, on a weekend I can go see the Terracotta Warriors or I can go down to Hong Kong or maybe on a week off I can walk the entire length of the Great Wall of China. I'm thinking, you know, I've got so many things I'm going to look forward to. And then I arrived in Shanghai and my suitcase didn't turn up. I was like, well, you know, worst things that happened at sea, it's going to turn up eventually. I'll not let that bother me. I'll continue on. I got down to my school and I got given my teaching materials. And I can remember flipping through the book going, wow, going to be, what can I do? How can I make my students passionate about learning English, make them excited about learning. And I created this really in-depth lesson plan. And I even was told, actually, before I got to the class, that the head of the school was coming to review me to check if everything was okay. So I I really under the pressure. So I did the class, and I was really happy with how it went. And the head of the school came up to me at the end, and I said, oh, how how do you think it went? And she turns around and goes, "Mm, we're not sure it's going to work out. And I was, oh, um... Why? What's what's wrong? And I think to myself, have I not done? Uh, was there an issue with my paperwork because it done such in you know, a rush or was there was there an issue with how I was teaching? Was it too enthusiastic? And she turns around to me and looks me straight in the eye and goes, you're a cripple. You're damaging the school's reputation and we want you to leave by tomorrow.
1: Right. And this is again, you have got I'm going to send I'm going to send you I'm going to send it to you. Um, I want you to go back and listen to Michael Munn's interview that I did. He, This is exactly how Chinese people perceive disability. And mm-hmm. th- this is this is exactly the problem. The truth of it is they never would have let you talk there because of their perception uh, of your yep. situation. And this is you're, uh, exactly...
2: You're, you're a person that and it doesn't matter what you're able to do. That detail of, of what you just happen to be is all they cared about. So right. I left the school and went to try and check into a hotel, and my car didn't work. It turned out that the school, I tried hacking into my account. If they weren't going to get money from me for teaching, they'll take it out of me and trade. So they tried calling home. And a little-known fact is that you can call into China from the West, but you can't call out of China on a Western device. So I couldn't even mm-hmm. call my bank, and call home and tell them what was going on, so I was trapped. So then as I was like, right, okay, well, I'm not going to close I'm not getting any food. I'm not getting any supplies. All I had was about, 100, uh, about $120 worth of Chinese currency in my pocket that I had to survive with. And I can remember clutching my bag to my chest with my laptop inside being my only line of communication to the outside world, listening to this thunderstorm pound on the ping-pong table I just so happened to be under, watching the water slowly flood underneath me. I'm thinking, I, I-, I honestly thought that was it because going back to what I said initially I kind of i have been content with it yeah you're doing okay for someone with an impairment I kind of contented myself with being that I never pushed myself as hard as I, I, I still probably haven't ever pushed myself as hard as that happened because it was a, it was a desperate situation of this is how I had to survive but I, I did manage to start getting myself back on my feet and I decided that we're going to need to get some help and that was that way of I'm not going to be able to survive this on my own I need assistance and it was that way of doesn't matter how prideful you are, if you are starving and homeless, accept help wherever you can get it. So I went, I believe, of all places, I went to a foreigner's nightclub in Changsha, which is the capital. Great, great of idea.
1: The- Excellent idea. Exa- interact with other foreigners. It's exactly what I would have done. I would have tried to find another foreigner. Who speaks English mm. or French? In my case, and say, hey, help me! Look, here's the situation. Oh, help! What, what, what do I do? Yeah. yeah. Or, or the other, or the other logical thing. If you were in Beijing, this would have been a lot easier. If it had been me, I would have just left the school right that second, and I would have just gone over to the American embassy and said, "Look, I'm blind. Please help me get back to the states. I can't stay here even one more second. Just, just put me on the next flight out yeah. of here." That's Uh you should have just you could have or should have just probably just gone to the British embassy and said, look, I'm from Scotland. I'm from the UK. I need I need to get back. I need to get back home. And they would have helped you for 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 sure. Yeah.
2: Uh, That there is the simple answer to the very complicated question of there was not an embassy in that province. They right, but I mean, was there, no, I, and and I
1: under, and this I understand, the ambassador usually lives yeah. in the capital of the country, but oftentimes large countries and powerful countries have consulates all over large countries. I'm sure there was yeah. a British consulate somewhere that you could have gone to, right? There
2: was, and the closest one was in Hong Kong. As I said, I could, take a, I could take a high-speed train and get to Hong Kong in about three hours, but I had no money. I couldn't afford to get there. I couldn't walk. You know, these trains go at 400 kilometers per hour. I couldn't walk all that way. I need to find a way to survive in the meantime. And I had a I had a work visa, so I figured out okay, well I can get a, I can get a job. I've, you know, things have gone bad. I can, I got myself situated in the hostel, but some of the foreigners said right okay, well I'll help you find a place. They put me up for a couple of days. They put me in touch with people who can get me a job, and I could still salvage what's going on in people. Maybe not a Chinese school, but a foreign-run institution. So I went to one of these places and I gave them my information and I'm not particularly good at reading body language. And this person looked worried. So all I could think to myself was, oh, God, what now? So they typed in all my information, left the room and about 30 minutes later, they came back and gave me a train ticket to Hong Kong and said, here's a ticket to Hong Kong. The police are coming for you. Be on that train. And it turned out that first girl, the one that we don't want you because you're a cripple, had racked up nearly £10,000 worth of fines on my head, had corrupted my visa so I was there illegally. And obviously the police were coming to arrest me to to collect
1: an old bounty. Unbelievable. You know, I never knew that with, with Aaron's show we can also tell the truth about what's happening to people all over the world. Unacceptable and unbelievable and i'm not at all surprised that is so Mm -hmm. china i am not remotely surprised i am sure that you i'm sure that once you got back home to the uk you reported this issue to some government agency in the uk right so i'm sure that the ambassador found okay i'm just glad because they need to find out they need to know that that need that that cannot happen again to another foreigner i'm not at all surprised Mm-hmm. I reported
2: yeah. it and let lawyers know, I let institutions know. I reported it to the teaching agency, who, by the way, had said, "Well, it, you know, it's your fault. You you went out there. We didn't know about it. You should have been able to deal with it. It's not up to us to make to help you keep your job. We just need to help you find a job." So, you know, I tried suing them on that, but then, apparently there was not enough case because it was a Chinese institution. Good luck trying to sue a Chinese institution. So it was, it, by the time I got home, um, I, I, when I got to Hong Kong, I, I called up uh, an international friend. As I said, I did a, an international masters. So I had inter- quite a lot of international friends. One of them lived in Hong Kong. I called him up and said, you would not believe what was going on with me. How about we meet up? So we agreed to meet the next morning and we went out for breakfast. And the hostel was on a one-way street that led out onto the main street. So I walked down the one-way street up onto the curb and wived down the taxi. And just as I was about to get into a taxi, a police car turned the wrong way down the one we switched the lights on. And two on guard went to my oh, hostel. Oh,
1: man. Oh, this is this is material. Oh, man. This is a, this is a story, James. Wow. Yeah. God like, almighty. This is oh, great
2: stuff. I just couldn't. That was the thing. Every time I felt I made progress, every time I said I'd done something right. Something came along and shook me, not my confidence, and tried to kick me back onto the ping pong table. But, right. after, I, I, I pretty much refused to let this beat me. I refused to let this be the barrier I stumbled upon, that I washed up against. Because I was, it all came down to one thing, really. It came down to determination. My parents might call it pig-headed stubbornness, bear in mind, but I am determined. <laughs> um, and it was just that way of, because of that, because of my experiences, I realize what I'm capable of. And that's why I advocate for people to have that level of individuality and independence at the same time. You know, you, you figure out how independent you are and figure out what you're capable of. Because you, you never know what you're capable of until you put in that situation. And the moral that I always kind of draw from that story is it's not that you should never give up is that you never stop trying because I don't think I would be here if I'd never stopped trying. If I'd given up or if I'd stopped trying to find assistance if I'd stopped, you know, at any point across my journey, I wouldn't have survived, but I did and I've got this incredible story and ironically, I probably wouldn't change it because, don't get me wrong, I never want to relive the situation, but it's a situation and an event that has changed me for the better.
1: Unbelievable. That was uh, your, your, your speech, your, you're so perfect. That was a perfect speech. (laughs) So um, in the end though, I mean, so, so did you, did you, I I certainly hope I, I I appreciate every word that you've told me today and every word that you told about that fascinating and disturbing and not at all surprising story about China. Um, (laughs) But I, I certainly hope that you wrote a formal letter to the uh, British uh, minister of foreign affairs and the I'm, I'm I certainly hope that the MFA in, in, in the UK knows that knows that that happened to you and that someone someone at the British embassy in, in Beijing needed to know that that happened. So I am I so I hope that you wrote to them and I hope that they uh, are, are aware that that happened, because, you know, yeah. I, I mean, the last thing they want is to have some foreigner locked up in China. I mean, it happens. It's one of the risks yeah, of traveling the world that you can't you can get locked up abroad. It does happen.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah. um, I never actually. I didn't. I, I never actually wrote to someone as high as the British Foreign Ministry or anything on that department, though. And come to I don't know if you suggest that I probably will do actually I'll do a little bit of research to see if I can find a way to get in contact with them and, and, and direct them to what happened and, and, and inform them. I like I, say, I would, I I would advocate for that. America.
1: Because it's because one of their and one of their jobs in any in any succ- in any powerful country, in any successful great nation is that the foreign ministry, apart from representing the country abroad representing the interests of the of the country. The other thing that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs should should do is be able to represent citizens who had bad experiences over o, overseas. And they they, as far as I'm concerned, they need to know that that happened to you because that's wholly unacceptable, yeah. and and not surprising. And they probably will not do a thing about it, but they need to know that it happened because you, you can't allow that. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, good advice, and uh, I'll definitely be taking you up on it. I'll be I'll be sending a a, a sternly worded letter. And believe believe you me, I'll be sending a sternly worded letter to the
1: to the ministry to the ministry of foreign affairs there in London. Yeah, because they need they need to look yeah. into that. Whether it's um, I mean, obviously we aren't going to get too far off track, but obviously they need to. What they need to do is they need to contact their intelligence people in in China, and they need to. It sounds like they need to do some looking around in the, at this school and. See what see what's going on over there because because uh, something's wrong with that Danish Republic as as we would say you know but <laughs> none of none of this you know these types of things with English teachers overseas this happens all over this happens constantly actually all over the world in in uh-huh. in incredibly all sorts of different ways it, it, it can happen Um so you know um i'm i'm not i'm not remotely none of this none of this uh, surprises me um in 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 the slightest you know but all all of that all of that is 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 very is very very fascinating and very interesting so thank you so whatever, whatever became of your friend from Hong Kong, did, did they just, were they just scared away by the police car? Did they just run into their house after the police car and you never heard from them again? Or what, what, what happened? <laughs> um, no, I was jumping
2: in, the I was jumping in the taxi to go and meet them at another location, um, which they, they didn't, they didn't see that, but uh after we kind of had our had, had our breakfast, and I informed them of what went on, they were like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that's happened!" You know, you guys are you you may well know the, the the difficulty that Hong Kong is having with with mainland China. And, I've been hearing, it, you know, you know I'm
1: I'm not I'm yeah. not I don't have a vested interest in it, um, but mm. I've been hearing a lot about that. Yeah. hmm. Hm.
2: Mm. So it was that idea of well, the slow, the friend you know was it was stunned by it and i'm not really sure uh what has gone on since then for for her but uh we, we've stayed relatively in contact we, we we exchanged messages from time to time um just to catch up and see what what things are what things have, have developed but uh by the time i I only stayed there for a day we kind of we went up mount victoria um, one of the kind of national parks of hong kong uh, which thank goodness for it, because I'm fed up of tasting uh the fumes in the air. If you, if you, if you ever hear stories about China not being polluted, they are lying in the most extreme of ways. That's a, in yeah, that's, yeah no again.
1: yeah right. China China is one of the world's most uh, disgustingly polluted countries ever. Uh, so to say that it's not polluted is is uh, inaccurate. Yeah, China is a mm. grossly is a grossly, as you saw, is a grossly corrupt country and a grossly polluted country. Mm-hmm.
2: It, was, it was something that I found out very interesting after I came back from China. And with the top ten most polluting countries, such as India, Canada, America, Iran, such and such, if you add up the top nine of the world of the world's most polluting countries, they don't reach how much China pollutes. Yeah. China pollutes more yeah. than the other top ten combined. You know, something like they produce ten million tons of CO two into the atmosphere, whereas the US, which is not great, as I will point out, is only does five million and then the next one is two million. So it's you know, two, five, ten. I think it just it's it's unbelievably polluted there. You know, you, it was, people were wandering around and, and public officials were handing out gas masks and safety mm. masks to people on certain days because the pollution had just gotten so bad. And, and there was a joke I once heard about uh, when, the, when the Olympics were going to Beijing. And it's like, just to show you how polluted this city really is, the javelin has got stuck in the sky.
1: A oh, What has got stuck in what?
2: It was a it was a joke when the Olympics went to Beijing in 2012. Um, there was a, a bunch of comedians were making jokes about how polluted the environment was. And one of my favorite comedians made the joke that just to show you how polluted this city truly is, the javelin has got stuck in the sky. Ah, uh-huh. <laughs> think. It, it it was so it was bad. Like I was. You know, the length of a the length of a block or two blocks, and you start you start seeing this hazy effect, and after four or five blocks, you can't see anything. You think you can see at the average, you know, six uh, six foot male, you can see something like two to three miles just standing. You can barely see four or five blocks because of how much pollution there was in some of these places. It was ridiculously bad.
1: Mm. Mhm mhm yeah yeah this is also funny or not funny but it's it's still pretty amusing actually in the sense mm-hmm. last last year my brother was studying abroad in Seoul in Korea it's a long story but when Ch- the china's pollution blew all the way to Seoul and my, bro- mm-hmm. and my brother got conjunctivitis in his eyes or something he ended up with an eye infection all the way from China and he was in Korea
2: that's that's incredible. That is incredible.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, well, mm-hmm.
2: it's we've, we've slightly meandered from topic, but um, I'm hoping you're I'm hoping I'm keeping you and your viewers entertained. I'm sure they'll have some interesting comments for us.
1: I'm I you know, I, I really I really hope so, James. Really, the most interesting part of today was the, the story from China. Um, Yeah, that's that's fascinating, fascinating material. Um, And it, it certainly warrants, as I said, a full investigation by the British government as far as as far as I'm concerned, although I'm just some American guy. Who am I to tell the British government who to who to <laughs> investigate? But I'll tell them they need to they need to look in. They need to they need to talk to James James J. C. Loud of Scotland and they need to then they need to fully look into this because this is a bunch. This is a bunch of tw- oh, this is a bunch of nonsense. And they it's really it's really, really, really dangerous. Um, for, for, for the relations between your countries, you know, China does try to have good diplomatic ties with countries from time to time, or who knows, yeah. but you, 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 you have, you have to say some, somebody, somebody needs to make some... a couple phone calls. Something needs to be yes. looked into here. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, it's really fascinating, fascinating stuff. I mean, there's so many, there's so many other, um, and so many other topics. I observed that you kind of slowed down the momentum there. So how much How much more do you want to talk? How much? How many other things do you want to cover today?
0: It's,
2: it's, it's not so much that I don't want to talk, because believe me, I'm enjoying your company, I'm enjoying enjoying the chat, but I've, I've got 20% on my, uh, on my laptop, and uh, if I go and sit out where my laptop is is able to charge, I'll, I'll get a lot of background noise. I don't want that in your podcast, more along the lines.
1: Th- thank you. Okay. All right. Well, James. Um. So if if a and and I'm I'm going to be sending out a a link to my Facebook page. But you know, what if someone is listening to this show and and they want They want to get in touch with you about about your course, your mindset course, and or they just want to mm-hmm. reach out to you, James. How 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 could they do that? Go ahead. Give yourself a commercial. Give give yourself a plug. Um, <laughs>
2: Well, I have a, a few kind of major outlets. One of them is my Patreon page, which is uh, www.patreon.com forward slash jcthecontinuer, all one word, jcthecontinuer. And alternatively, if you want to get in touch with me through Facebook, uh, another way to do that would be through, again, uh, facebook.com forward slash jcthecontinuer. Alternatively, if you're more interested in, you know, me personally and what I do as a seven point person, because those those previous two were more related to my writing career, I have the outline of James Laird Works, uh, facebook.com forward slash James Laird Works, and if anyone wants to get in contact with me and talk about anything that was discussed here, wants to know any more information, Um the course isn't quite ready yet. I will say it's still, I'm, I'm still developing it, it's still going through a couple of um, trial and error stages and uh, when it will go live it will be announced on that page so if people want to like and follow you're more than welcome to and um, the last thing I would say is I do have a YouTube channel where if they want to hear the full speech of what happened to me in China that's, um search for James Laird works on YouTube and I should be able to come up I've not got a huge amount of videos on there at the moment it's only recently been established but if people want to go there and, and uh, see and hear More about the details and what I went through, then that's a good place to go and have a look.
1: I certainly want to learn more about that. You're welcome to send that to me. Don't move. Let me give us the outro and then I'll let you go. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to a very entertaining, educational, and inspirational episode of Aaron Show, the podcast for blind persons where we talk about issues in the blindness community, even. Issues in China or Virginia or all over the country. Again, we were so glad that James Lab joined us today on Aaron's show. If you have any questions for him or for me or for Aaron's show, please comment below wherever you see this podcast. Or you could even leave me an audio message. You guys are too scared to do that. But you could even do it. Leave an audio message right here on Anchor. Don't worry. I'll get back to you. And thank you so much, James. We really appreciated having you. Um, you're always welcome, and I'm sure that you're going to come back on my show many times, and you are always welcome to come back on this show <laughs> as much as you want, mate. And as we say, and as I say for my official outro, to close it out today before I turn off the recording and get, and get this all together, have a good day today and a great day tomorrow.
0: Oh, in the bakery. Do I want a pumpkin donut or... Uh,
1: there are other people behind you in this drive through
0: Oh, uh, I'll just take it all.
1: Okay. It's all the cozy you crave at Dunkin'. Pumpkin favorites and new fall additions. Like new creamy without the dairy oat milk lattes and the signature pumpkin spice ice latte plus more. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.